Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey, I am so grateful that the two of you could join me today. We have Lonnie Forbes and her agent, Samantha Wexstein. Lonnie is the author of The Seventh Son, and here are some of her amazing blurbs. In The Seventh Son, six girls enter, but only one will leave alive. With intriguing magic, a merciless and ancient story world, and a brave heroine who is determined not to compromise, Lonnie Forbes has written a compelling debut. I cheered for Mayana both as she fought to survive and as she tried to win the Emperor's heart. Readers will be clamoring for the sequel. That's so exciting. And then there's another one. This vivid historic tale will transport readers to an ancient culture and along the way will capture their hearts as well. Hard to do both. And Lonnie Forbes delivers lush storytelling, vivid characters, and heart-pounding drama in her compelling debut. This is all wonderful, and I cannot wait to hear about how you accomplished all of this and a little behind the scenes. But Lonnie, welcome. And why don't you tell us a little bit about you and what inspires your work? Um, Yeah, absolutely. So I've been a middle school math and science teacher for the last 10 years. And so I've just I've worked with young adults on a daily basis. And um, I've always loved reading young adult fiction myself. So not only did I teach young adults, but that was my favorite genre to read myself. And so I don't know, just I've always been really passionate about writing. My mom likes to tease me that in fourth grade, I won a creative writing contest. And literally my teacher in fourth grade put on my report card that Lonnie excels at creative writing. And I was like, sweet. Aww. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> do you still have it? I, I actually do. I still have the report card. My mom like sent it to me and I thought that was hilarious. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. But just, I don't know. I've always, I've always loved writing and, and all throughout high school, it was probably like my form of therapy for myself. I just loved to read and write. And it was just kind of how I processed things and I don't know. I go back and read a lot of my journal entries from back then. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, was I dramatic. But (laughs) I have learned to channel that drama into a much more productive path. (laughs) Well, but I would also argue that journal writing is great groundwork for being able to get emotions down onto the page. And it sounds like you've done a really good job of that. So I'm happy you had that time to process that. Yeah, I I agree. I think one of the hardest parts about writing is definitely sometimes capturing emotional things. And I think journaling is a really good way to get that practice in of being able to describe how emotions feel and so and then being able to translate that to characters too. Yeah, absolutely. And we are also so happy to have Samantha Wexstein, your agent here. Samantha, welcome. Tell us a little bit about you. Thank you so much for having us. So I'm an agent at Thompson Literary Agency, and I represent a wide range of authors from picture books all the way up through adult, anything really genre, commercial, anything high concept. I love a good voice, and I am so excited to be Lonnie's agent. Yay. So how did the two of you meet? We actually met through Manuscript Academy. What? <laughs> We did. Yeah. Okay. Tell, tell the story. Start at the beginning. How did you know that the other one was the right the right fit for you? Well, I, I found Manuscript Academy because I, I'm just a research nerd and I love looking at every kind of possible resource I could find on writing. Like I was going to workshops, conferences, 
reading craft books like crazy. And I had come across Manuscript Academy and just your awesome podcast and some wonderful articles that you guys had posted. And I was really excited about it. And then I noticed that you had your 10 minutes with an expert. And so I was like, oh my gosh, that's a wonderful opportunity. And I wanted to get feedback on my query letter that I had. So I started kind of scrolling through all the agents and Samantha was like right at the bottom, I think because Wexstein with W was kind of like right at the bottom. But I noticed that she had said that she loves epic fantasies in the vein of Sarah J. Moss and Lee Bardugo. And those are like two of my favorite authors. And so I was like, oh, I can tell she and I would get along wonderfully. So So she was my first pick and I picked her because I was like, yes, if she loves epic fantasy like that, then we will get along. (laughs) And what was it like during the call? Um, Did you immediately hit it off? Absolutely. Lonnie has a very dynamic personality. Um, you know, she's a teacher. She's very friendly. And I, th- I just thought that she had such a great idea for a book. Um, and so we got along really well. She had a smart concept and I was hooked. Oh, that's so great. And so from there, Lonnie, how did you know? Well, I guess you knew that she was a great fit and you guys were just getting along. That's that's so nice. I mean, you must have been out on submission. So you told everyone else you had an offer. Yeah, I, I was really excited because I was really hoping to just get feedback on the query letter. And then she asked me, she's like, actually, can you send this to me? And I was, oh, of course I can. I was very excited. <laughs> and so I actually, I think that was, it was summer of 2017, I think. And I had gotten an offer from another agent because I actually had been getting quite a few requests. I think I had about eight full requests out at the time. Oh, nice. And I got an offer from one of them. And then I went ahead and notified the other eight agents that had fulls out. And kind of one by one, they were like, this is a great idea, but I'm just not really sure it's a great fit for me. And I really liked the agent that had offered initially, but I just, I I don't know, I was honestly holding out hope for Samantha because she was probably my top choice. (laughs) And so she, I think, called me like at the very, the last day I hadn't, I think most of the other agents had kind of stepped aside. And then um, Samantha called me on that like last day where I was literally preparing to be like, okay, well, I'm just going to accept this first offer from this other agent. And then Samantha called me, I think that morning and was like, I stayed up all night to read your book. I loved it. And I was like, yes, I'm not even like, I'm just saying yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, so at the time I was still, I was a junior agent, so I was still assisting Al Zuckerman. So in terms of my workload, it was hard for me to spend as much time on my own projects. And so I was like, I have to put aside time to read Lonnie's stuff before, you know, she makes a decision. And so I did, I stayed up all night the night before reading the book and I couldn't stop. So it was very exciting to get to have that phone call and for her to choose me. And can you tell us a little bit about what stood out to you about Lonnie's work? Well, one of the things that I think she's going to talk about today is her world world building, which is really, I mean, she did so much research. It's very authentic. Um, and the way that she brought the magic into the history is really unique. Also, her book has a crazy twist, um, which left me shocked and I had to read it all the way to the end at that point. So um, both of those things totally hooked me. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Yeah. So Samantha, before all of this happened, you had been in publishing for a little while. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in publishing? Yeah, I have a little bit of a a roundabout crazy kind of journey. So I had had a few internships while I was in college, one of them for you. Yay. Um, Yay. 
And when I graduated, I had a hard time still getting my foot in the door, even though, you know, I had had that experience, but I was lucky enough that my parents live in the New York area and they could support me. And so I took one more internship at Writer's House. I found the ad on Craigslist. Um, (laughs) And it was for Al Zuckerman, who's the founder of Writer's House. And on my second day as an intern, his assistant was diagnosed with tuberculosis and had to be quarantined which back then was an unfamiliar concept. (laughs) And so I took over as the assistant and that's how I got my foot in the door. So I worked for Al for a few months, Mickey got better, he came back um, and I went back to being an intern. And so then I left, assisted at another agency and then a position opened up at Writer's House with the CEO, Amy Burkauer. And so I went and was her assistant for a year and four months and then I actually ended up working my way back to Al, who is an excellent boss and who I was very happy to work for for the next few years. And so I was at Writer's House for like five and a half years. And after the first few years, I was told I could be a junior agent and take on my own projects. And since then, I have become a full agent. And so I only work on my own projects. And so that was a really exciting jump as well uh, to make by moving to Thompson. Yay, congratulations. I'm so happy for you. And yeah, I mean, Lonnie, you could probably spell this about Samantha right away, but she's one of those people you know who you're just like, yeah, I like you and I want you to do well and I think you're going to. And she did. So That's so sweet. I feel the same (laughs) way about you. Oh, and not just because we both really like cheese. The last time I saw Samantha, we were at this, like the cellar of this cheese shop that serves the most amazing macaroni and cheese. And it's like my go-to spot for meetings because I can convince (laughs) people to get mac and cheese with me. It's, It's a really good meeting spot. So one of the things you mentioned is the world building. Lonnie, can you tell us a little bit about how you approach that and what advice you have for other authors? Yeah, absolutely. So world building is probably one of my favorite parts of writing in general. I think like it was, I think Anais Nin that had this like wonderful quote that talks about how she says like, I believe one writes because one has to create a world in which one can live. And she said like, I had to create a world of my own, like a climate, a country, an atmosphere in which I could breathe. And I just, I don't know, I I really relate to that. And so for me, especially growing up, like I, I loved reading and I was one, I was the daughter of a librarian, so I was I was the the nerdy librarian's daughter all throughout high school. That you know everybody made fun of me that I was the one that literally in the back of chemistry class would be sitting there reading a book, and the chemistry teacher would be like, "Lonnie, pay attention! I have to oh, put my book away." <laughs> but just I loved to escape into other worlds. It just I don't know something about it. It just I don't know, especially during rather challenging times in my life. Like it just reading was always one of those things that could pull me out of whatever situation and just help me feel like I could keep going. And so just that element of being able to be pulled into a world, it was just, it's my favorite part of reading. So it had to be one of my favorite parts of writing. And so I really, when I go in to design a world, I really want to make it feel as real and as nuanced and as detailed and complicated as possible. Because I think one of the fun parts about having a really detailed world is when your reader is trying to figure out how certain things work. And, you know, you get to know the world so well that you almost want to try to guess what's going to happen because you feel like you know the world as well as the people in it now. And I I don't know, it it feels like the world almost because it's its own character in in a way. 
Ideally, yeah, but that's hard to pull off. How do you do it? So I, I'm, I'm a history nerd as well. Like I love reading about history and my undergraduate degree is actually in psychology. And so I love studying history and cultures, but I also love studying it kind of like from an anthropological perspective of like people and how they view things and why do cultures become what they are and how did certain historical things become what they are? Because everything culturally that exists, whether it's today or you know, thousands of years ago, there's a reason why those certain structures came to be. And so I feel like if you can really research and understand, okay, why is this political structure set up the way it is? Or why is this religious tradition set up the way that it is? And if you can really understand the whys behind some of those, you can then build on that and add the details and the characteristics from there. So I thoroughly like to draw from history, especially because, I don't know, it's fascinating for me even to look back, especially at at more ancient cultures, to see how much we still have in common with them and how humans still think like humans, whether we have the technology that we have today or we don't. And just to see how creative they are and how they're able to come up with things and how they organize their own worlds and systems. To me, I love to study that and then use that for inspiration for building my own worlds, if that makes sense. (laughs) It does. I'm impressed though, because sometimes I feel like I don't even understand why we have elements of the culture that we have today. (laughs) So I'm glad that you're able to to understand that in a world that is a bit removed from ours. Maybe that even makes it easier. Maybe it's easier to see it within a historical context with more distance. Yeah. And, and even though it's, it's a fan, cause my world is a fantasy. Like it is, it is inspired and it is based on, um, different historical groups from ancient Mesoamerica, but it's still, it's still its own world. It is, it is a fantasy world that is not inspired by one group in particular. And so what I did is I tried to study the different elements of different groups and try to see what were some of these consistencies that they had, especially, with ancient Mesoamerica, a lot of the cultures um, would conquer each other. And as they did, they would incorporate aspects of each other. So there is a lot of crossover and a lot of kind of sharing between the cultures. And so when I was designing this world for the seventh sun, I really wanted to focus on what were some of those similarities that I was seeing kind of running through some of the different cultures. That's really cool. Samantha, do you ever see the same issues with world building over and over in your submissions pile? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest problems with fantasy queries in particular is that I feel like in order to understand how a character can achieve their goals, I have to also understand how they move through that world. And so without understanding the basic parameters, even in your query letter, it's hard for me to understand the obstacles that your character has. And so I think establishing sort of the limitations of the world, the way that the magic works, um, and entwining that with the goal of the character is just like a very, very basic and necessary thing that every fantasy should have at its heart. One thing that I find is often really difficult for writers is to get us into the world so that we understand it, but without making it feel like we're memorizing a bunch of facts. Is there a way to know if you're giving people too much information or an info dump and on the or on the other side, leaving your writers confused? Um, do you have any ways of approaching that, Lonnie, or is it all intuitive for you? Well, I, I think to a degree, some of it's intuitive, but I also, I feel like I had to learn a little bit of this, that as well. Cause I think writers, especially fantasy writers, we do have this natural tendency to info dump 
because we're so excited about this world we've created and we have all the details and all this amazing stuff we figured out and we really want to show off to the reader how cool this world is that we created. But for me, the trick is really paying attention to what information is needed and when. So just because you have the super cool aspect of the world doesn't mean it necessarily needs to be introduced in the first chapter. And so really paying attention to the plot specifically, the characters and the plot, and what information about the world is needed in that moment to understand the plot and where it's going. And just it's it's a difficult balance and and not just figuring out how much to put in, but then also how to put it in. And so my one of my favorite techniques is trying to make sure that I if I am going to slip in a detail about the world to do it in a way that like makes sense. I heard a really good kind of example of that is if someone walks into a room it's it's and just says like oh yeah there's a vase of flowers on the table but that's that's kind of just telling instead of when the when the character walks into the room and sees the vase of flowers you can still mention that there's a vase of flowers as long as you tie it into the vase of flowers reminded the character of this or something and so finding a way to use those those little strategies of slipping in world building details as it pertains to the character and as it pertains to the plot I think really kind of helps sneak them in without feeling info dumpy. (laughs) I love that because I had thought of it in a more basic sense of how do you create the familiar and then lead that familiar into the world as well. And I think that's probably another side of the same coin, right? Like if we can understand emotionally and that emotion is really vivid in us and we can relate to it, then even if you're in a completely other world, sometimes we can feel a little bit less lost. I don't know if this happens to you, Samantha, but when I'm reading really quickly, which is most of the time, I can easily get lost in a, in a world. And I feel like my reading comprehension actually goes down when I'm reading that quickly. And so I look for those elements that make it extremely clear what's happening in a fantasy novel, because I feel like fantasy novels probably suffer the most from agents reading quickly. Yeah, I mean, that happens to me all the time. And I think the most important thing, even if you're doing really intense world building, is to still ground us in your characters and their journey, because at the end of the day, that's what we're going to care about. And I think that just sticking us with them and having us experience the world as they experience it, as opposed to filling in all that info in big chunks, is the most important way to have it feel natural. Exactly. And and I'd even say like when you're designing those initial chapters, which is where a lot of the world building would take place in a fantasy, is specifically trying to pick scenes that would be most conducive to showing that in relation to the character. So like maybe picking a scene where you can see the magic being used for a specific purpose by that character. So it's not just, oh, by the way, this is how the magic works, but actually like picking a scene where you can see something in action in a way that makes sense with the plot. I love that. So it's kind of taking elements of your world, but twisting them. So it's, here's this really cool element that I happen to come up with, and you'll be glad it's here uh, once you continue reading. But also, here is this one very specific function that could only go into this book. Yeah. So for example, in The Seventh Son, I, I think one of the most important things to understand about the world is the importance of these rituals that the Chicome people do in order to prevent the next apocalypse. And so that was such a key part of understanding the world and how my character functions in that world. And so for her first scene, I felt like it was really important to show, to introduce her 
in the middle of one of these rituals and showing her kind of frustration with how it's done, but then her father's explaining why it's important. And so that way you kind of, as the reader, get to hear why it's important as her father's reminding her yet again, why we're doing this. And she's feeling that frustration and that that kind of push against it. So you still get the character and I feel like it builds her character, who she is. And you kind of get the sense of how stubborn and she doesn't like to be told what to do. But then at the same time, you also get introduced to this world and why they're doing this particular ritual at that time. I'd love to talk for a moment about strong female characters. And Lonnie, you have this great quote in an interview with actually one of my clients, Sheena Bokwig. And you said, I think so often we only think of strong women as ones that can wield a deadly weapon, which is still awesome, by the way. But strength can take many forms, including the strength of your heart and strength of your conviction. Can you talk more about that? Absolutely. And that was honestly one of my inspirations for creating a character like Mayana. And that, I mean, yeah, I don't get me wrong. I love like the characters that can wield swords and go in and totally kill the bad guy. And that I absolutely love that. But I also really love that Sometimes, at least for me, like I personally could not hold a weapon to save my life. And if you gave me a sword, I would probably drop it and be like, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) And so does that mean that like, I can't be a strong woman because I can't wield a weapon? And I I don't think that that's true. And so when I look at like the women that I admire and what makes women so strong too, is I feel like it can also be a strength of character. It can be a strength in our ability to feel emotions and and feel empathy and feel compassion. And I feel like that so much gets labeled as a weakness often. And I think it is one of the most incredible strengths you can have because the the ability to be vulnerable and to be empathetic and to feel emotions is such a scary and dangerous thing for so many people that I actually think that in- requires an incredible amount of bravery is to let yourself be sensitive and to let yourself feel what you feel. And there's you said a lot of people that don't have the courage to do that. And so I think that is absolutely a type of strength that we can have. And as I, I consider myself a feminist. And so I think it's something that a lot of times women get put down for, for being like, oh, well, you're so, you're so hysterical. You're just so emotional. And I like to come back as like, well, I'm sorry, you're a f- too much of a coward to feel emotions. I'm brave. Oh, I, like I mean, <laughs> I try to say it nicer than that, but just, I'm sorry that <laughs> you're so afraid of emotions that they scare you that much, but I'm brave enough to feel them and show them. So (laughs) no, I really like that. And I think that's so important because it's so frustrating that often it's like, okay, you want someone to listen to you. Step one, have no emotion. Step two, act like a stereotypical man. Step three, see what happens. Hope, you know? So yeah, I'm, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I really like about uh, the seven sons series um, that readers will find actually, I think, more later in the series is that Mayana is not the only character who doesn't wield a weapon and is strong. I think like Yamania, who is the healer character, is also, she's very insecure in her abilities, but at the end of the day, like her heart wins out and she crushes it. She's one of my favorite characters for that reason. I love her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so like, it's it's cool to have a series where being a strong woman is can take a number of different forms. You know, you have the warrior like Zora, who, you know, she's animalistic and, and tough. And then you have Yamania, who, whose strength comes from healing and from her heart. 
and Mayana, whose strength comes from her stubbornness and from, you know, sticking to her beliefs. And so that's one of the reasons why I love this series, because it is feminist in the way that it portrays all these different types of women and their strength. Yeah, and that's that's really what I was hoping to go for is to show that there are so many different kinds of strength and just to label strength as only strength with a weapon, I think really does a disservice to, like I said, women like me that I feel like one of my biggest strengths is my empathy and my ability to feel so deeply and intensely. And I've been doing a lot of studying into personality theory as I'm working on a master's of clinical counseling right now. <laughs> Oh, cool. But, but I actually, I feel like that's a huge strength of mine. And that's, and that's something that I want to be proud of and view as strong and not a weakness. Well, I think that's really important too, now that we have, you know, not just the concept of a strong female character, but the strong female character, you know, all caps. And it's strange because I don't know if you've seen this too, Samantha, but I feel like I have seen so many strong female characters and I'm like, I like this in theory, but how do we make them real people? And I think going into that empathy and that that element of them that's vulnerable is often what makes them both more strong and more lifelike on the page. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, emotions are what make us human. Um, and so you can't just be tough all the time. And and of course, you know, some women are sharp edged and are tough. And again, tough can take many different forms. It can be emotionally tough. Uh, it's It's tough when you're vulnerable as well. But yeah, I think that I love like a big badass sword wielding woman. But I also think that we have to get to the heart of the emotions and and what's motivating them. And that's what makes a story great. Just for fun, have either of you ever used a sword or any kind of unusual weaponry? (laughs) I learned how to fence at theater camp. Nice. But like stage fencing, like not real fencing. Lonnie? Um, I'm I'm trying to think. Um, No, not really. (laughs) I think uh, my... uh, Gosh, there's some people in my family that love to collect like historical memorabilia. And so like I've I've gotten to hold a dagger from World War One that was used by a pilot that was really cool. But like I can just kind of hold it and look at it. That's about the extent of my weapons experience. Words are my weapons. I love yes. that. I love that. Well, if I can just make a shout out to the crossbow, which is underutilized. It's so much easier to pull back than a bow and arrow. I usually don't have the strength for that. But <laughs> yeah, I got to try a crossbow. I've, I've tried a couple of them over the years. I used to do Ren Fair, but I got to use one on New Year's Eve that was like an actual real, like had a safety on it, like really hard to pull back, really like strong actual weapon. And the thing, like I literally shot an arrow through the target. Oh <laughs> so, God. I actually forgot great. that in my like really bougie high school in Westchester, we had an elective in gym that was archery. Oh, cool. And I, <laughs> so I have shot a, a bow and arrow many times, um, not for many years, but I can do it. Well, I, I think it's, I think it's a good thing to try once safely. I, I'm like, I guess I'm fine with weapons in like the context of, of sport, but I'm, I'm a pacifist. <laughs> Yeah, same, same. Only only targets would never actually hurt anyone. Oh, and it went into their like shed door. Anyway, there's still a hole in a shed in California because of that crossbow, but we all well, ended that's up. That's okay. their fault for letting <laughs> that happen at their house. <laughs> um, so I think 
one thing that's really interesting about building building your character this way is that it also adds tension to your work. Um, can you tell us about how you, do you have a method for adding tension? Do you just feel it as you go along? How does that work? Well, I, I read this amazing article recently that was talking about how tension is done. And I think sometimes I tend to like do stuff almost kind of naturally or intuitively. And I don't, always necessarily know like how I did it. But then when I go back and I research and I study, I'm like, oh, that's that's how that works. Okay, that's why that works. And so for me, especially, I've been doing a lot of research into the importance of choice, specifically with, with fiction. And I think I was reading an interview with another agent who was talking about a query letter that she was critiquing. And she pointed out how the author had included in her query letter this really heartbreaking choice that the main protagonist was going to have to make. And then, um, and how that was what really pulls you in and makes you wonder like, Ooh, what is this character going to choose? And I, I really liked that. And then I was also reading another article that was talking about how, what makes a really good twist ending and how most authors think it's just revealing information like, Oh, I'm going to reveal the secret hidden information and ta-da, that's the twist. But that's, but that's not actually where the excitement and the energy comes from. It's not always just revealing unknown information. It's when that unknown information is paired with a choice that a character is making. That it's really what's so what brings a lot of tension is when you're like, "Ooh, what choice is this character going to make?" Or they make a really unexpected choice that you're not expect that you know you weren't expecting them to make that choice, and that's where so much tension comes from. And so I was kind of reading that and then I started looking at some of my favorite books and some of my favorite movies and I really started to see that as as being true. I think one of my favorite book series I just read was The Cruel Prince series by Holly Black. And so much of what especially in the last book and I don't want to give anything away for spoilers but just the character has to make this really heart-wrenching choice at the very end and and you don't know what choice she's going to make. And so and 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 she sets it up in a way of like, yeah, this choice could make sense, but this one could make sense too. And you as the reader are so anxious and kind of like, you know, you're feeling that tension as you're wondering what choice is is she going to make. And I think so really going into when you're plotting and planning a story, and now anyway, I try to really focus in on what is that huge choice that my character is going to have to make at the end. And I think I, I kind of did that accidentally with the seventh son where she, my character does have to make a really huge choice. You know, she's wrestling the whole story with, do I try, do I just silence my heart and do what everyone's asking me to do? Or do I stand up for what I believe in and face horrific consequences? And I think the most tense part of the novel really is where she makes this choice where, you know, cause you as the reader are like, Oh no, what's she going to do? Because it finally comes to a head and it's the point where she, it's, it's the stakes are the highest. She has to make this choice or, or else. And so I think that's where a lot of tension comes from. Are you a plotter or a pantser? I, what's, (laughs) that's such a hard question for me because I, I think I tend to generally plot, like there's definitely certain elements that I feel like, like I always try to plot out at least my ending of like, where's the story going or what is that big choice that my character is going to have to make at the end. But then how that happens and how I get there, I'll generally kind of outline. But then as I'm writing, if I feel the story going another direction, I'll totally go with where I feel like the story's going. (laughs) So I'm both. I wanted to add on to what Lonnie was saying before about forcing your characters to make that choice. And I think that another important aspect of that is laying out the stakes for us. And that is 
another way to build attention is like if the character makes the choice in one direction, what do they stand to lose? And in another direction, what are the consequences for that as well? And I think really clearly laying all of that out is what makes the reader go, what could the character possibly do to get out of this situation? And I have to keep reading to find out. And so I think like focusing on on the stakes and and what that choice will then mean going forward is also like really important for ramping up the tension. Oh yeah. Waiting for that like perfect moment of when are the stakes going to be the absolute highest for this choice to be made. And that's where you want your character to have to make the choice. Yeah. So to surprise your reader, do you know which decision your character is going to make or do you leave it until you get to that scene when you're writing it? Hmm. (laughs) I think for, for the seventh son, I didn't really know what choice she was going to make until I was I, I I got to that scene. But then with some of my other like with book 2 and book 3, I felt like I kind of had planned out what the choice was going to be and I kind of knew what choice they were going to make. So I don't know. I I've, I've done it both ways. I've done it both ways. In book 2, we actually like had to we went back and forth on that if I recall and we ended up tweaking it a little bit. Yeah, because that was book two was kind of one of those places where I really learned the importance of choice. And so I feel like I kind of went back and as I was looking at the choice that I had Mayana make at the end of book two, I was, it just it didn't feel strong enough. It didn't feel like the stakes were high enough. And so for the emotional tension that I really wanted to get for the story. And so, yeah, I think for book two, we went back and I we added in a different kind of plot point that I feel like really amped up some of that emotional tension that I feel like was missing from the first draft. Can you talk a little bit more about your editorial process working together? Yeah. Do, do you want to go yeah. first, Sam? Or? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm a very editorial agent. And so I like to sort of start with my clients at the concept stage where they pitch me an idea and I ask them questions about it. Um, and then I'll say, okay, send me an outline. And, and this doesn't have to be totally detailed, but you know, like Lonnie was saying before, it's like, you know, where the story is going, you know, what your ending is going to be, what the big obstacle decision is going to be for your character. Um, and so I actually like to go, if I can back and forth on that outline and sort of ask important questions, uh, about the world and about, why the characters make decisions that they make before they start writing. And then I, you know, tell them, okay, go write the manuscript. And once I have that first draft, I give like pretty comprehensive editorial letter, sort of big picture notes. And then we usually go back and forth after that with track changes on the manuscript. And that's sort of how I like to do the process. Um, But every client, every author is different. And so as an agent, I also am pretty flexible to their needs. Um, With Lonnie, that like works really well for us. I feel like we sort of uh, discuss the concept and then she brings in pretty clean drafts. So we'll go over it just a couple of times. And we will discuss things like tension and stakes and, and all of that in big picture notes. But yeah, and it's very collaborative, of course. Yeah, I, I definitely feel the same. I One of the reasons I wanted to work with Samantha is because she is such an editorial agent. And that's something I really love because I know a lot of authors get really scared of edits or really intimidated by edits. But I actually love edits, which I know is probably kind of weird. 
But I get really excited because I feel like what I come up with is, I don't know, for a cheesy metaphor, I guess would be like, it's, it's kind of like a diamond in the rough. And then I feel like when I get input from other people that maybe see perspectives that I don't see or see issues that I don't see, I can then, they bring it up and I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's true. That does need to be fixed. Or, oh yeah, I can adjust that. And I feel like just with having different viewpoints that come in, it really shines the story up. And I have never finished edits and gone back and felt like it was worse than what I first sent. I always go back and I'm like, oh my gosh, that is like what I wanted, but even better. And so I look forward to that editorial process. And um, Samantha's really fantastic too about how she's really good at pointing out like, hey, this is a particular issue right here of maybe this character's motivation for making the choice doesn't really make sense. Or maybe there's an issue here that's kind of confusing. And I feel like she's really good at allowing me kind of She'll give suggestions of like, hey, this isn't working. Maybe you could try this or this. But then she does allow me the freedom to go in and fix it in the way that I see is best. And so she kind of helps bring up the issue. I can look at it and go, yeah, you're right. That is an issue. And then I, she allows me to be creative in how that issue is fixed, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think the most important thing as an agent is to really understand your client's vision for the manuscript, because if you're not on the same page about what you want the book to be, then it's hard to give notes to get the book to that place. And so all of my notes are always trying to achieve that end that you know that final vision of what the story should look like. And so I think that my notes should point to the problems. And of course, I love to, you know, I'm not just going to be like, this is bad, fix it. I want to be like, hey, this isn't working for this reason. And I want to give you some examples of how I think you could address it. But at the end of the day, it's your book, and it's your vision. And so I just like to point out what's not working for me and let the author figure out how to solve those problems. Well, it's so nice to hear a healthy editorial relationship like this. I think a lot of people know abstractly that it exists, but being able to hear both of you talk about this is just really lovely. That said, where both of you are, you've definitely put in a lot of work there to get to get there because it's not like anyone is born being able to take edits and run with them. And it's not like anyone is born knowing how to give edits so that they're constructive. So can you talk about how you got to that place, both of you? Yeah. Well, for me, it's just been a lot of practice. I mean, I was lucky to work for Al Zuckerman, who wrote an entire book on how to edit your book. It's called Writing the Blockbuster Novel. And he is highly editorial. And there's not a piece of paper that crosses his desk that doesn't get scribbled edits on it. And so I was very lucky to have such a hands-on experience with him and uh, edit a lot of his clients' manuscripts. And over time, you know, you settle into your style. One of the things that I really like to do in my editorial letters is I actually break them down into like categories. And I literally do it like kind of a bullet list where I'll have like a heading subject and I'll talk all about that one topic. And he calls it, Al called it like creating a roadmap for the authors to follow. So it's almost like, like a like a guide um, that they can refer to each separate section of the letter. And so over time and with a lot, a lot of practice working on his client stuff, I developed my own style and I still have to adapt that style with each different author to see what works best for them. Yeah. And I think from the author side too, I've, I've really appreciated that style of, I know there's been a, 
there's one manuscript in particular that I swear someday I'm going to get back to, but Samantha probably knows which one I'm talking about. I've, I've been trying to figure out ways to fix this one particular manuscript. And whenever Samantha would send back edits, I loved how she had, yeah, these headings of like, okay, here's this issue with maybe this character's characterization, or there's an issue with the pacing in this particular scene. And so I feel like as an as the author, it's it's makes it easier to go back and kind of address each of those issues through that roadmap style. So I feel like I can kind of go down and, and address them as they come. And yeah, just that's been really helpful for me. And then I think as a writer too, and it's I actually wrote a blog post about this once, is that I think this is an example of where having emotional strength is a strength. <laughs> and that I, I think sometimes people get very defensive about their writing. And I've seen this so much in like writers workshops or conferences that I've gone to where, and I think even at the beginning, it was something I kind of had to learn too, is, is you get so sensitive about your writing and you feel like it's a reflection of who you are as a person. You pour so much of your soul into this work of art. And then to feel like people are coming in and criticizing it and critiquing it or saying it's not good enough you'd almost take that on to yourself saying that like, oh, well, you're not good enough. And I think authors have to work on learning that your work is not a direct reflection of who you are as a person. And, you know, having that growth mindset of you are not a good writer or a bad writer, that all writers are constantly growing and learning and changing. And so if you go in with that more, and this is as a teacher, I've seen this a lot too, because when I'm working with students, you can tell the students that have a growth mindset or a more fixed mindset, the ones that are like, oh, I'm just dumb at math and I'll never be good and I can't do this. And I always make them add to the end, yet. <laughs> you may feel like you can't do this, but maybe you can't do it yet. So I think authors can really learn from that too of, you know, yeah, maybe you're not good at dialogue in particular yet. That doesn't mean you can't learn. That doesn't mean you can't grow. And especially with an agent and an editor, they care about you and they want your writing to grow and be the best that it can be. So I think if you go in with that mindset, it, it helps you not look at it as an attack or as a, ju- an, a, as a judgment on your writing and who you are as an artist, but really as, of course, they think you're talented. Of course, if you know they wouldn't have signed you or they wouldn't have offered you a book deal if they didn't think you had talent. Now they just want to help guide you to make it even better because even... I said, Samantha mentioned that everything that came across her boss's desk had edits on it. I mean, Stephen King, as brilliant as he is, still has an editor. (laughs) I think every author has an editor. And so knowing that going in that you're not going to be 100% perfect, but that these people are here to help you make it the best it can be. Yeah, absolutely. And, And I think it's also important for the role of the editor to also highlight what you're doing really well because we do love your writing and we do get excited about how you craft your world and your characters. So I always try to put that into my reports and also, you know, cite that as an example of where we have problem spots that I want to be on the same level as these other things that are working really well. So Lonnie, if you could give your querying self one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, that's hard. (laughs) Back when I was like in the, actually like in the querying process. Yeah. If you could go back in time and give yourself some advice with the querying process, what would it be? Is never stop growing and changing and learning, especially because I think with each query letter I sent out, I would send out maybe like five and then I would try to use the feedback that I'd get to improve and make it better. And so I just, 
I don't know, I, I would encourage myself to keep that, that growth mindset that like, you know, you keep trying, don't give up, but also learn and grow from each experience because, you know, yes, this person requested a full of your manuscript and they didn't like it. Instead of viewing that as failure and wanting to give up, use that as an opportunity for growth, learn from it and change. Because I, I think especially at the beginning, I made some probably pretty bad mistakes when it came to querying. And I, but I learned from those mistakes and I was able to grow and change. And I, I hope eventually that that's what led to the query letter that eventually got Samantha's attention was because I had learned from making so many mistakes before. So to myself, but also to anyone else that's querying is just keep learning and growing because with each thing that you learn, it does get better and better. As a successful published writer, are you willing to share any of those mistakes to make anyone feel better? Oh, yes. Let's see. <laughs> I went to, this is like at the very, very beginning. I went to a writer's conference where I won, I had entered like a raffle and I think I won a query critique or I won, like it was like the first 10 pages critique from an agent. And I won't say who that agent is because she was very wonderfully nice to me. <laughs> but she had sent back some some critiques on on my work and I didn't understand what she was saying. And so I, I kind of like, I don't want to say argued back, but she had made a comment about one of my characters. And I was like, well, but this character is, you don't understand. And, and, and so I felt like, I don't know, I was kind of trying to like argue with her about what she saw. And looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's like the worst thing to do. <laughs> and so, and now looking back, especially, I'm like, yep, she was totally right. Like that character was, was a particular issue. And so yeah, there's just, or I think there was another agent where she had posted on Twitter and I was relatively new to Twitter at the time. I didn't really understand that you don't pitch agents on Twitter yet. Like I literally had not been on Twitter until I signed up for Twitter to do author things. And um, there was an agent who had said, I'd really like to see this. And I, I sent one of those tweets that was like, oh, I have one of those. Can I send it to you? <laughs> and I didn't realize at the time that that's really not you don't usually pitch through Twitter. So I was one of the ones that, that pitched through Twitter and I learned. <laughs> but I think all of this is so good to hear because it speaks to your growth mindset, right? If you had been like, oh, I made a mistake, therefore I'm a bad writer and should give up, you wouldn't be in this amazing position that you are today. Yeah, I'm really glad I didn't give up because I, yeah, as I said, I feel like I made a lot of mistakes. I, especially my early query letter, I, looking back, I'm, oh yes, that needed some work. <laughs> But you have to have that growth mindset growing, going forward. I feel like that is super important for the publishing industry, especially. Definitely. All right. I have just one, one more question for both of you. What's your number one tip for writers? Well, in terms of the query letter, I find that writers shortchange themselves sometimes because they don't really focus on pitching that much. And I think that it's important to highlight the parts of your story that you're really excited about and that you think make your story stand out. And so I think that that's definitely something you should focus in your query letter and you shouldn't be afraid to express what's amazing about your book. Yeah. For me, I would say my biggest piece of advice is to read, <laughs> which sounds like a very general piece of advice, but to read your genre that you like, that you're hoping to write in. I think if you can read your genre, you kind of get a feel for what's expected uh, for 
certain styles. And, and I love studying other authors and how they do things in particular ways, especially authors that I really admire. I'll read their book. And if there's a scene in particular that just really gripped my heart or just I had a really strong emotional reaction to, I'll actually go back and study that scene and try to figure out how did that author accomplish that? Like, how did they do that? <laughs> and so studying studying the authors that you really admire is a big piece of advice, but then also reading craft books. You know, there's, there's some wonderful books out there that have a lot of really good advice. And I've read a, a lot of them and there's not like one in particular that I'm like, oh, that's the one that you have to, re- that's what you have to do. I feel like I've read enough where I've gained a lot of, information and helpful tidbits from so many different books. So I just read craft books, but also read books in the genre that you're hoping to write. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Lonnie. It was such a pleasure to meet you. And I'm so happy everything is going so well. And I love the advice you gave today. And Samantha, I'd love to have you back on the podcast sometime soon. Can you both tell us where we can find you online? I'm at Swextein, S. Wextein on Twitter. And if you need to get in touch, I'm at Samantha at ThompsonLiterary.com. I have a website that's just LonnieForbes.com. And then pretty much all of my handles on Twitter and Instagram are all just at Lonnie Forbes because it's one of the benefits of having an unusual first name. <laughs> and yeah. your books are wherever books are sold, correct? Yes. Okay. And we're going to put put links to these wonderful books in our show notes. And again, thank you so much. I am so happy to see, like I said, a healthy editorial conversation <laughs> taking place. It's it's so wonderful on so many levels. And I just, I wish you both all the best. So thank you so much for thank joining you. us. Thank you so much for having us. This was awesome. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.